0: You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Okay, on today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Kate Barlow, Associate Professor at American International College in Springfield, Massachusetts, and Dr. Chris Barnacow, Associate Professor and Post-Professional Doctor of Occupational Therapy and Implementation Chair at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Kate and Chris are both ambassadors for the CDC's Learn the Signs Act Early. Thank you both so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Of course,
0: it's our pleasure. Kate, I ha- I have to ask to start off. Are you familiar with the book Holes by uh, Louis Sachar?
1: <laughs> yes, I am.
0: <laughs> well, you probably know my follow up question then about the infamous Kissin Kate Barlow, um, who's a character featured in that book and film. And I just thought it was cool that you you two have the same name.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Luckily, my kids, they're a little young for that, or their friends might tease me. But yes, I am very familiar <laughs> with that. Disney made it into a movie.
0: Yes, a wonderful book and film, um, if, if I say so myself. Thank you again both for being on the show. I know today we're planning on touching on some uh, hard-hitting topics, um, including the updated CDC developmental surveillance milestone checklists. Along with the research they published with the American Academy of Pediatrics and a question and answer resource document that AOT has, has created. Um, there's been a lot of activity on social media and community related to this topic. Um, and before we start, I just wanted to encourage all of our listeners to check out those articles and those resources in addition to this interview. Um, But let's go ahead and dive right in. You both work with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as ambassadors for the Learn the Signs Act Early program. Can you tell us about the purpose of this program and what it means to be an ambassador?
2: Sure, I can take that question, Matt. Uh, Act Early ambassadors expand the reach of the Learn the Signs Act Early program and they support their respective state work toward improving early identification of developmental delays and disabilities, including autism. Since 2011, professionals with medical, child development, developmental disability, special education, and early intervention expertise have been selected to serve as a state or territorial point of contact for the national Learn the Signs Act Early program. We also support the work of Act Early teams and other state or territorial or national initiatives to improve early identification of developmental delay and disability. And finally, we promote the adoption and integration of Learn the Signs Act Early resources into systems that serve young children and their families.
0: Wonderful, thank you, Chris. That's a, a great summary um, of of the program. Uh, Kate, was there anything you wanted to add?
1: No, that was perfect, Chris. <laughs> I'll take the next question.
0: <laughs> perfect, perfect. How how does one become an ambassador?
1: Well, the ambassador is a term for two years. So every two years, the positions will be posted for the states and uh, the CDC releases the application. So actually, Chris posted the announcement on Commune OT for the Massachusetts ambassador position back in 2018. And I applied and then my tenure began in March of 2019. Um, Currently, um, this summer, there's going to be applications for a lot of the states for ambassador positions. So anyone that's interested should be on the lookout.
0: Awesome. Where could someone find a link to to do that application if they're interested?
1: Sure. If you Google Learn the Signs Act Early, um, there's if you scroll up, there's a lot of different options. But one of the options is the ambassadors. So if you just click on the ambassadors, it has all the information.
0: Perfect. Perfect. I use Google quite a bit. So um, hopefully our listeners are um, as well versed in that technique as I am. How how would you say that your experience as occupational therapy practitioners and researchers motivated you to be interested in serving as ambassadors for this program?
2: I can start uh, just I Actually my experience I practiced in early intervention for most of my career and then as an occupational therapist on an autism diagnostic team. And when I was a direct early intervention service provider I noticed that children were being referred to birth to three either shortly before their third birthday or not at all. And uh, this was occurring because parental concerns were not being addressed. And I wanted to better understand, in addition to uh, the challenges that parents were having, I wanted to also understand why this was happening and what other barriers existed. So I engaged in research to identify barriers to developmental screening, maternal mental health screening, and autism-specific screening. And the... Generally, the findings of this research revealed that there were structural barriers, so there was a lack of payment for screening by non-physician providers. There were knowledge barriers, so there was a lack of knowledge about developmental monitoring, using autism-specific screeners, and how to communicate with families from diverse backgrounds. So my scope has really changed from individual service provision to utilizing a public health approach that includes health communication and family engagement. And that's how I became interested in the CDC ambassador program.
0: Wow. That, thank you, Chris. That's a, a wonderful example of using you know problems that you identified as a practitioner to motivate you to to take action, um, and and address them and and create ways that um people you work with can can overcome those barriers. Kate, same same question to you. How what motivated you to become an ambassador, and uh, if you could share some examples of your work and how that scope has has changed over time as well.
1: Uh, I came this a little bit differently. My, you know, 15-year plan, long-term goal in life is to work for the World Health Organization. So when I saw this work for the CDC, I just got all excited about it. And I just have seen that my work has changed so much in that I take such a public health approach now. And my work, I work PRN and early intervention. It's It's really changed how I look at family engagement. But also, I wrote a grant to work in Head Start, so I'm working in Head Start two days a week now, and I'm really sort of working as an ambassador uh, in that role, and I just really love how my career has shaped and taken a different turn since I've become an ambassador.
0: I love that. I love that. It's not every day you get to speak with two go-getters like yourselves, (laughs) Um, so thanks for uh, sharing a little bit of that background um, with us. So, the CDC recently released um, or, or updated the developmental surveillance milestone checklist. I'll be honest, few things in, in my limited experience uh, in, in the OT community really make a buzz throughout all of rehabilitation like this has. I work in outpatient pediatrics and it's been, you know, the hot topic at the clinic. I've seen practitioners from across the country share concerns and opinions about the update. And it's important to address. And I think hearing from you two about the process um, that was involved with the update will be very informative for everyone. Um, So can you tell us about the purpose of these checklists and how they're used?
1: Sure. So the Learn the Signs Act Early program has a lot of different free developmental monitoring tools. Um, The campaign uses behavior change theory and traditional social marketing techniques to promote early identification. So the checklists are a developmental monitoring tool, um, and this tool serves as a communication tool regarding child development. So the purpose of the Learn the Signs Act early milestones checklist is to really educate and engage families and other, you know, EEC providers, physicians about the skills and abilities that most children, you know, 75% or more would be expected to do by the specific ages on the checklist. So, these checklists support but do not replace, by any means, universal developmental screening um, that are recommended at the well-child health supervision visits. Um, And the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends um, a, a certain schedule of visits. And so we really want to use these checklists to increase the amount of screening that's being done in between the recommended screenings that the pediatricians are currently doing.
0: I love that. Thank you, Kate. Chris, was there anything you wanted to add there?
2: Just as Kate had mentioned that uh, the campaign uses behavior change theory and traditional social marketing techniques, and that might be a little different from the theories and, and techniques that occupational therapists are commonly used to. So um, this this campaign is really to get the word out. And, and so uh, that's a little different approach than I think occupational therapists are typically used to.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And as, as Kate mentioned, it's really a, a tool to educate and engage families. Um, I do, I do want to ask about some of the specifics, though. What would you say is the difference between diagnostic evaluations, developmental screenings, um, developmental surveillance, and developmental monitoring? I know that's a loaded question, but if we could touch on those four things, I think that'd be really helpful.
1: Okay, I'm going to take a shot at this, but Chris, please add in if I forget anything. But there's been a lot of confusion about these terms. So I appreciate you asking. So I think we need to start um, sort of at the top. So pediatricians are recommended to complete developmental surveillance at every visit. Um, that Those visits are those scheduled well visits that I just talked about. So within um, the surveillance are six steps. One is to review the developmental monitoring checklist and their history. The second is to ask about concerns. The third is to assess strengths and risks. The fourth is observe the child. Five is document. And then six is share results with others. So the learn the signs act early checklist are developmental monitoring tools, um, which when completed by other health professionals help to bring the concerns to the pediatrician's attention. So developmental monitoring is not at all the same as screening. Developmental monitoring can be done by anyone in the community. It is a public health tool, and it occurs over a period of time. So developmental monitoring helps to increase the amount of screening being done because you're bringing up concerns that the parents may have. So, the evidence has shown it's best practice to really combine developmental monitoring with screening in order to identify children with delays. Um, SOTs, we know screenings, right? Um, They're brief, usually 15 minutes or less, and they don't capture the full range of the child's skills or development. And they, the screens only indicate the possible presence of a delay. They, they certainly don't diagnose. Um, developmental screenings also include the use of a reliable and valid screening instrument, right? So um, I think that's important to note there. And screenings must be followed by a comprehensive formal evaluation process in order to confirm or disconfirm any concerns raised um, by the screening procedure.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Kate. Um, Chris, is there anything you wanted to add related to evaluation, screenings, or developmental surveillance, or developmental monitoring?
2: No, that was uh, perfect and really informative. Thanks, Kate. Uh,
0: there, there's a, a lot of um, terms and definitions, so I do appreciate you uh, kind of providing that that background information for us. Um, And based on what you have just explained, where would you say the CDC developmental surveillance milestone checklists fit? And why is that where it fits?
1: Okay, so the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends developmental screening for all children at the 9, 18, and 30-month well visits, or any time that a parent has a concern. And then there's also the autism screenings at 18 and 24 months. So basically, there's four times that a child is recommended to be screened from birth to age five unless there's a concern. So as OTs, we know that there are often a lot of concerns identified before nine months, um, as well as between the ages of two and a half and five. So these developmental checklists help to get children additional screenings at those well child visits in addition to the ones that are already occurring at the 9, 18, 24, and 30-month visits. So these checklists are a great communication tool to engage parents, EEC providers, clinicians, into a conversation about the child's development and any possible concerns that they might be having.
0: I love that. And this is very insightful for me as a, a new practitioner. I'm still constantly learning about our continuum of care and the interaction between OT providers and, and pediatricians. Um so this is, is great background information. Chris, was there anything you wanted to add there with um how these developmental surveillance milestone checklists fit in uh in that continuum?
2: No, I really appreciated Kate's comments about how the checklist can actually help support a parent in between those scheduled screenings. Uh, Because if a parent has a concern, uh, then they can use the checklist and talk to their pediatrician about their concern.
0: We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. And support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. These checklists haven't been updated since 2004, um, so it it, kind of makes sense that it was time for an update, um, but I I did want to ask both of you, why did the CDC feel the need to update the Developmental Surveillance Milestone Checklist at this time?
2: Yeah, I can address that, Matt. Uh, Since 2004, there has really been an ongoing review of the milestones. Uh, in 2019 in particular, there was a paper published in Pediatrics uh, December 1st of 2019, and that paper was titled Establishing New Norms for Developmental Milestones. And this really presented a strong need to revise the milestones. And if, for example, in that paper, the authors stated that each CDC milestone is used to describe a particular behavior, but does not include a specific question for parents. So they were really looking for more specificity that would help parents in their communication with their pediatricians. And so they also commented that it was difficult for parents to know when to act early. And so the conclusions of this paper indicated that there needed to be more specificity in the milestones. And so the CDC wanted to be able to offer a Learn the Signs Act Early Milestone Checklist for every age at which there's um, a scheduled well visit, and um, also during the time between two months and five years of age. And so what they did was they added the 15- and 30-month checklists. Uh, it's important to note, because there's been some mis- uh misinformation or uh, different thoughts, the the changes to the milestones were not directly related or influenced by the pandemic. And the review of the evidence and revisions were completed in 2019, and parent testing for understanding and reliability was done in the summer of 2020.
0: Thank you so much, Chris. Um, You you cut out just a, a little bit at the end there, um, could you just repeat that about um, the, the timeline of how evidence was used to inform this change between 2019
2: and 2020? Sure. Sorry about that. I'm in a very rural area, so sometimes the connection isn't the best. Uh, so um, the, the review of the evidence and revisions were completed in 2019, and then there was extensive parent testing for Understanding and Reliability that was done in the summer of 2020. And it's important to note that the parent testing was done with a variety of parents from diverse uh, cultural and ethnic backgrounds.
0: Thank you, Chris. So specificity was a a big uh, emphasis for, for this update. Um, what else can you tell us about the process or, or method that the CDC used to develop these checklists?
2: Sure. Uh, the methods are thoroughly described in a paper recently published by Zubler and colleagues. And I really recommend that practitioners review that paper to understand the full detail of the methods. In general, a team of subject matter experts were convened, and they engaged in following an evidence-informed process. So the first step was uh, to conduct a literature review, and they did that in March of 2019, and they used Medline, PsychInfo, and ERIC databases. The subject matter experts nominated and reviewed developmental resources, including parent resources, professional teaching resources, and commonly used screening and diagnostic evaluation tools. They evaluated the current milestones, and then they did a milestone evaluation of the resources they had collected, and only milestones that received unanimous approval by the subject matter expert team were included in the revisions.
0: And here on Everyday Evidence, we love a good literature review, um, <laughs> and we loved when things are evidence-informed. Uh, so so thank you for that background. Let's go ahead and get a little bit into that nitty-gritty um, of this update. What What criteria did the CDC use to determine if a milestone should be included in the checklist or not?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. The updated Learn the Signs Act Early milestones were chosen to reflect what most children, 75% or more, would be expected to do by a specific age based on available data, and it was to better identify potential concerns. In the process of the review and revision, data were not available to support inclusion of all previous milestones. So milestones with available data to support them were kept, some at the same age as they previously had been, and some at different ages as described in the pediatrics article. The title of the article is Evidence-Informed Milestones for Developmental Surveillance Tools, and it was published in Pediatrics, uh just recently this month
0: Absolutely we'll we'll provide a link to this article um in our episode description for all of our listeners Kate is there anything you wanted to add uh to this point
1: Uh no Chris is doing a great job I told her she could take all the hard questions <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, absolutely. I think I think I've got a couple more hard hitters for for you both. Um, who, who would you? Who were the subject matter experts that were consulted throughout this uh, revision process that you've outlined for us, Chris?
2: So the AAP Systems of Services for Children and Youth with Special Healthcare Needs team identified and convened eight subject matter experts. And these subject matter experts uh, came from different fields of child development, and they included uh, de- professionals from developmental, behavioral, neurodevelopmental, and general pediatricians, child and developmental psychologists, a professor of special education, and early intervention. All subject matter experts had graduate training and experience in research methodology and medical decision-making and clinical experience in developmental surveillance, screening, and evaluation. One subject matter expert was an editor of an, oh, excuse me. Two of the subject matter experts contributed to the American Academy of Pediatrics Bright Futures Guidelines for Health Supervision of Infants, Children, and Adolescents, and two subject matter experts were lead authors in the AAP's 2020 clinical report about promoting optimal development, identifying infants and young children with developmental disorders through developmental surveillance and screening.
0: Was there any OT representation among these subject matter experts? And how could OT practitioners advocate to be involved in similar projects?
2: Yeah, that's. I think uh, we can really become involved by applying to be an actorly ambassador. Uh, I also recommend that OT practitioners connect and collaborate with the systems of care within their states that serve infants and toddlers. And what I mean by that is to reach out to early care and learning centers, local public health departments, our women, infant, and children's programs, and home visiting. Be uh, engaged with our NICUs uh, and pediatricians and family practitioners as well. Many of these programs and services are engaging in developmental monitoring and screening, and we can find out how occupational therapists can use their distinct value that's understanding parental concerns to uh, add to the early identification team. What I've noticed in my work as an ambassador in Wisconsin is that each geographical area in the state has unique characteristics. So doing this work of early identification, of getting the word out and being advocates for children and families can really vary from uh, location to location. So for example, in rural southwest Wisconsin, there isn't a pediatrician for three counties. So we're actually working through a grant funded by the CDC with a community connector who has relationships with child care agencies in these counties, and actually is working through agribusiness. So she's working with the milk trucks, because it's a big dairy, um, there's a lot of dairy and farming that's going on. And so she's working within agribusiness to help do early identification there. So we can get involved at the national level by working with the CDC and the Act Early Ambassador Program. And we can also be involved more at the community and local level.
0: That's a wonderful example, Chris. And I, I want to ask a follow up for um, any practitioners who who feel very passionately and and want to be more involved. Uh, w- what can they do? How can they kind of make those connections to to become involved on a national level? I know we used Google as an example um, previously. Are there any other kind of resources or, or um, directions you would recommend that a practitioner go to to make that type of connection?
2: Yeah, I think definitely the looking at the actorly website, um, connecting with uh, the actorly ambassador in the state, too, to see what work they've been doing. Uh, those are ways that we can definitely become involved.
1: I'd like to jump into and add that most states that i know of have an act early team that is a like a board group that volunteers their time the state of massachusetts we meet quarterly and it's uh there's 14 of us and we all get together and we talk about how to really implement Learn the Signs Act early's within these different state systems. So we're always looking for people to volunteer who want to be involved in this. Uh, so if you aren't involved in your um, state, please definitely, like Chris said, you can contact your state's ambassador and they will definitely know how to be involved with the state team.
2: That's an excellent point, Kate. And actually, that's how I became involved with the ACT Early Ambassador Program was through our ACT Early state team.
0: I love that. Thank you so much for sharing those recommendations um, for our listeners. Uh, I I think that's wonderful. What, What are some of the other changes that are seen in this 2022 CDC developmental surveillance milestone checklist that you'd like to highlight right now?
1: So previously, the checklist contained milestones around the 50th percentile on the left-hand column of the checklist. Right. So there were two sets of checklists. There was the left hand column that were milestones that we were looking for and they were around the 50th. And then there was also another set of milestones on the right that were in the purple box. And these purple box milestones were the red flag milestones that were at the 75th percentile or more. Now the checklists only have the 75 percentile or more milestones. So now if a child is missing one milestone, the child is referred. So before it was confusing as to what to do if a child wasn't reaching the milestones that were on the right column that were around the 50th, um, which facilitated this sort of wait and see approach. So the updated checklist moved the milestones that were around the 50th to discourage that wait and see, like they're not there. They don't include them anymore. So I've seen a lot of social media posts stating that the CDC pushed back when children are expected to reach a milestone. And this is a misunderstanding of how to use the checklist. So before on the old checklist it was a red flag if the milestone was not reached that was in the purple box and that was at the 75th percentile or more and the new checklist are also at the 75th percentile or more. So I feel as though these checklists have greatly improved in clarity and ease of use. And they also reduce the amount of milestones on each checklist um, that you're reviewing with families um, from around 22 to 13 per checklist. I'm going to just keep going here. But the checklist now, um, they also have screening reminders on the checklist, which I really like. Um, So when the child's next screening is due, it states on the bottom, there's this new um, section in blue at the bottom saying, um, you know your baby's best. Don't wait. If your baby is not meeting one or more of the milestones, has lost skills he or she once had, or you have other concerns, act early. Talk with your baby's doctor, share your concerns, and ask about developmental screening. If you or your doctor is still concerned, one, ask for a referral to a specialist who can evaluate your baby, and two, call your state's or territory's early intervention program to find out if your baby can get services to help learn more and find the number at the cdc.gov. It has the link. So I really like these new improvements where it's telling the family, this is when your next screenings due. If you have a concern, here is how you can find the early intervention program near you.
0: I love that. I love that. And it, it sounds like it's really emphasizing the importance of the of- Getting those screens done, and if there are concerns, providing directions on on how those concerns could be addressed. I did want to circle back. Kate, you mentioned the the wait and see approach. Um, could could you tell me more about that and how it relates to um to the checklist?
2: I can take that one, Matt, and I'm I'm going to uh, take a. A step back a little bit and consider the process of early identification, because the checklists are one piece of that early identification process. And so the very first step is to listen to parental concerns. And I just want to share like my experience as an early intervention provider. I would encounter parents who voiced concerns about engagement in daily occupational routines or challenges with co-occupational participation. So for example, I recall uh, parents saying, um, my child won't calm down unless I run water or have background noise, or my baby screams when they're given a bath, or my child won't ride in the car seat without crying or, or my baby hits their head on the crib when they're trying to go to sleep. And so as an occupational therapist, these are the considerations I would pay attention to. And if we listen to these concerns, we can understand that these situations are very stressful for parents. And after learning of these concerns, then maybe I would want to review a checklist and open up conversation about other uh, concerns that the parent has. And um, if I were to encounter a parent who expressed concerns, I as an OT would not take a wait and see approach. Um, I believe that the wait and see approach might be related to situations where the parents aren't being heard or where there are beliefs about the parents due to social, economic, cultural, and linguistic differences. So I really do think that the milestone checklist, especially the revised milestone checklist, can promote those conversations about development. But the key is to listen to what's happening in everyday life, and who knows that better than an occupational therapists? Um, I, I think we do, and so the relationship between using these checklists, I think, is it's a little bigger picture than just the checklists alone.
0: Absolutely. I I like how you emphasize the importance of the client, the child and the family um, as as being the the main focus and the the center of, of our care. In, included in, in this new checklist, some of the old items are are not present. Um, I think crawling is one that has received a lot of attention um, among the OT community is not being included. Uh, what are some reasons that the CDC may have removed some of those items from the new checklists?
1: So in that process that Chris described where they were reviewing the literature, um Some of the data was not available to support inclusion of all the previous milestones. So it doesn't mean that the milestones were necessarily wrong that were included previously. It's just that they didn't meet the new criteria that was established for this revision. Um, Zugler and colleagues publication provides the specific reason why each and every single milestone was reviewed in the supplemental table seven. Uh, which is free, online, and available to everyone. I looked at all of the ones that were reviewed because crawling, as you said, was a hot button item. And crawling was removed from the revised checklist because of the literature reviewed. There was little or no normative data available to recommend inclusion on a checklist. So that article, Zubler and colleagues, like Chris said, it's free and available, and you can go and see and look up every single milestone um, and the ones that were removed, especially, and the reasons
0: why. Absolutely. We want to direct everyone to, to look more into that article. Um, I, I think it is well accepted uh, uh, within the field of OT that crawling is a, a big ticket item. It is a, a, an important aspect of development uh, for children, um, and there is a lot of concern related to how not having crawling on this list could impact referrals um, and practitioners having clients sent to them. How how would you say that this change influences um, the practice of of our listeners and, and OT providers?
1: Well, I would like to just point out that we really are trying to be more culturally aware and that crawling is not considered a universal milestone. And the pediatricians that met with the CDC ambassadors to discuss the milestones were really emphasizing that not all children crawl. And, of course, as OTs, we understand how important that is for so many reasons. We could talk about that for an hour in and of itself. But... We need to have research to support these checklists. And as I was telling one of my favorite OTs, it's not that the therapists are not going to still look for crawling. We're skilled clinicians. We are still going to screen and evaluate for these motor skills. But these checklists are a public health tool. These checklists are meant for everyone in the community. So we, like Chris was saying before, I think we really need to understand the purpose of these tools and not trying to make them into a pre-screener because that's not the purpose.
0: Thank you, Kate. Is is there anything you wanted to add there, Chris?
1: No, I think um, that that
2: was very well put by Kate and very well stated. Um, and it is important to remember that this is a, a public health communication tool. And as Kate said, if a therapist is concerned about crawling uh, and the parent has other concerns, there, you know, there's no reason why uh, a referral for a developmental screening can't occur. Um, so I think that's important to remember too.
0: I, I think that's a great point, Chris. I think um, most parents would be willing to vocalize that as a concern when they when they meet with their pediatrician if that that case applies to their child. Did did the time frame that a child is supposed to achieve certain milestones change at all with this update?
1: You know, I'll address this. Uh, interrupt me if I'm incorrect, Chris. But I think some of the problem that I've seen on social media is people are saying. The CDC has changed when children are supposed to meet milestones from 50 to 75%. And I think it's a a misunderstanding of how to use the old checklist. So the old checklist did have all of the milestones that were listed on that left-hand column, as I said, that were the looking for milestones that were on the, you know, around 50th percentile. And the new checklists only have milestones at the 75th percentile. The CDC didn't change when children are expected to do the skill. It's just that the checklists now are only containing milestones listed at the 75th percentile or more. So, I just gave a presentation today, and I used the example of rolling. So rolling was on the four month checklist on the left hand column for the um, look for milestone at the fiftieth percentile. And it was also in the purple box for the sixth month checklist as a red flag. And now the checklist, the new checklist rolling is only on the six-month checklist. So if you were confused, you might think, oh, they moved it from 50th to 75 percentile, but that that's not really what happened. So I think when people really dive into the research article and really look at the checklist, I think they'll have a better understanding. And I think they'll be supportive of the milestone checklist.
0: Thank you so much Kate absolutely um Chris did you want to add anything with uh that question
2: No I think that was a an excellent response
0: Perfect. Thank you both so much. Um, I, I, I've seen various viewpoints and posts like you uh, mentioned, Kate, on, on social media about the checklists. Um, for me as a, a new practitioner, someone who works with children and youth, what guidance could you give about discussing these milestones and checklists with my colleagues and with parents of clients I work with?
2: Yeah, that's a a great question, Matt. And I would encourage occupational therapy practitioners to explore all of the tools on the CDC's Learn the Signs Act Hurley website. Uh, So I think, again, checklists are there to Promote conversation about development and developmental milestones, uh, but I'm actually a really strong proponent of using the milestone books for one, two, and three-year-olds. Uh, We have incorporated these books into our Family Foundation's Home Visiting Program, and we've found through a quality improvement study that they're a wonderful way to promote parent-child interaction while increasing the awareness, parental awareness, of milestones in addition, I like the growth charts because they can be a fun way to measure a child's height and weight, and they have information about immunizations, and there's also information about the milestones. So the, there's also uh, an app that families can download onto their phone and that helps them know when their next well visit is. So there's a lot of tools uh, out there. And I think the checklist, it's possible that if OTs are already seeing a child that's referred, my recommendation wouldn't necessarily be to use the checklist because at that point, I would want to use a more refined evaluation tool. But if an OT is engaging in prevention work and population health work and working within the community, and then using the checklist were um, developing a pilot program, and WIC, our Kate, has actually done a lot of this work in Massachusetts, but in Wisconsin, we're developing a pilot program with our WIC programs, and the WIC professionals will be doing the checklist. And so an OT can, could connect with their, their WIC program as well and um, help that that program, the WIP program, understand what early intervention services are available if they aren't aware of them. So I would really, we've had a lot of focus on the checklist, um, and I think that's good uh, because people want to know more about the changes, but I also encourage people to look at all of the tools um, there's also a sheet uh, that you can print out that actually helps parents with language of what and what to do if their pediatrician comes back with a wait and see attitude. So if we're working in that prevention space, that, that handout would be an excellent handout to provide to parents. Um, So the checklists are one tool, um, and we can use those in that prevention and public health awareness space. But as far as, you know, doing intervention after a child has been referred, then you might want to use the books or some of the other tools that the CDC has.
0: I love that, Chris. And and thank you for uh, emphasizing that point. I, I think as Um, The practitioners want to provide a a high quality of care. um, And there's so many more tools and resources that we can use in in addition to these checklists uh, um, to do so. Kate, was there uh, anything you wanted to add on to that point?
1: Sure, I actually use the app a lot. Um, But if we think about if you're working in EI or even school-based or actually even outpatient and the child is not eligible, this is something that you can really um, help parents uh, with a takeaway. So although your child is not eligible right now, like an EI, please continue to monitor your child. Here is this tool you can use. You can help set it up on their phone. The app comes in English and Spanish. And in EI you can say, and you can come back in six months if you're still having concerns. Or in the school system, continue to monitor your child. Maybe they're three and they didn't qualify, but come back at four. And same with outpatient, you know, continue to monitor. Come back in a year if you're still having concerns and go speak with your pediatrician. So sometimes when the children don't qualify for services, as they age, the gap gets wider, as we know. So they might not qualify today, but we really want parents to continue to monitor their children. Um, when when you're working in the home too, a lot of times, you know, um, there's multiple children. So if I'm working with a two-year-old, but mom, you know, just had a baby, I can help mom set up the app um, for the, the newborn that's uh, just been born. So there's lots of ways that even if you are providing OT services, that you can use these tools um, in addition to the books. Like Chris said, the books are they're awesome. So check them out if you if you're not familiar with them.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, we're, we're coming to the conclusion of our, our interview now. I just have um, two more questions, um, one coming uh, from the, the viewpoint of a, a pediatric um, practitioner. Um, you know, we're trained to, to know how each of these milestones contributes to the development of our clients, um, whether it be with reflex integration, sensory integration, uh, mobility, all, the, all these types of aspects of performance. Is there a need for practitioners to be concerned with whether they will be witnessing an increase or decrease in referrals or people who are referred to them based off of these changes?
1: I think absolutely not. I'm just going to jump in right here. I don't think that there's going to be an increase in referrals based on these checklists. Absolutely not, because the needle hasn't changed. We were referring on the old checklist and the purple box at the 75th or more percentile, and that is still the same for the new checklist. However, due to covid I think we're going to see an increase in referrals because children have not been doing their typical op- occupations. They haven't been playing. They haven't been going to school. I think we're going to have an increase in referrals because of that.
2: I agree, Kate, and and I also want to say that you know we we do have that expertise, uh, like you were saying, Matt, in development and in motor control and motor learning, and we need to respect our own um, knowledge base. Uh, But again, if we're operating in that more prevention or population health space, there are these excellent tools that can help um, support us in that work.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. I know these are some hard hitting questions and, and important to um, the, the entire OT community. So I, w- I want to thank you both so much for uh, sharing your time um, as well as your experience and your expertise with us. I just have one last question for you. This is a question I ask all of our guests. We call it our golden nugget segment. Um, and the question is this, if you could give one piece of advice or one recommendation uh, to our listeners, what would you say?
2: I can start. I would say embrace, embrace a family-centered approach, embrace listening to families' concerns, and also learn more about the family's everyday activities, occupations and co-occupations and then work to better understand what the strengths are within those and what the barriers are that are causing some stress for the families.
0: I love that. Thank you, Chris. And, and Kate, if you could uh, send us off with, uh, with a golden nugget that you'd like to share as well
1: my golden nugget would be make sure you surround yourself with a good team because you know life is short and we work really hard as OTs and I just feel that if you have a good team with you it makes work so much more enjoyable and we spend a lot of time at work but if you work in a good team that's the way to go just make sure you're surrounding yourself with a good team
0: I love that. I love that. Thank you both so much again um, for taking the time to do this interview. It's uh, truly been a pleasure um, speaking with you both.
1: Thanks, Matt, for having us. Yeah, thank Matt.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.